Good morning. Each time I have the honor of doing this, I uh, realize how effortless Damon makes it look. I don't think it really is effortless for him, but uh, it's much less effortless for me. <laughs> um, eventually, I'll be uh, speaking from Genesis 22, kind of winding my way down there. It's going to take a second, but um, a couple weeks back, uh, Damon spoke about worship, and the points that stuck out most to me were, first, we all worship. We'll either direct that worship mostly towards the true God or towards some other idol. Also, we'll become like that which we worship. And we may not even think of it as worship, but either way, everyone worships something. Secondly, and this is a point Damon has made frequently, all true worship, like all prayer, actually begins with God. He's probably made this point dozens of, in dozens of sermons, actually the main point of dozens of sermons, and maybe a side point in hundreds more, And yet, every time I hear it, it catches me a little bit by surprise, and I'm thankful to be reminded of what is certainly one of the most important truths of scriptures. It's not really hidden in scripture. You don't need to understand Hebrew or Greek to see this point time and time again. But it's one of the foundational pillars of the Jewish and Christian faith. So why does it catch me by sort of surprise so frequently? There's certainly a part of it that's related to my fallen nature and rebellion. I think I'm the center of the universe in my own mind, um... But in the modern age, to use Tom Wolfe's phrase, I'm also tempted to think that I'm the master of the universe. I don't just think of myself as the center because I'm peering out of my skull and looking outward. That, that might have been the mindset of a more ancient time, but in the modern world, I actually think that I'm the one who defines what the universe should be for me. I'm the prime actor. And the modern world tells me, and not only the prime actor and mover, but the very source of truth. In the words of Liz Lemon on 30 Rock, I am the decider. That episode didn't work out so great for Liz. That sounds like an exaggeration, but but let's look at it a little more closely. And by the way, when I use the term modern culture or modernity, I'm not just talking about what's current or trendy. I'm, I'm using it to describe the totally different mindset of modern philosophy and culture that began shifting around the 15th century and has really accelerated in the 20th century. The main characteristics are secularity, not just setting aside, but radically pushing away anything not considered to be part of the physical world, and materialism, or the reliance on the material world as the the sole source of knowledge. I really think we could call this the plastic age. Everything is malleable. Plastics are basically blobs that can take any shape we want, and they have no intrinsic purpose, but are totally open to whatever shape we want to form them into. Not to put too fine of a point on it, but we seem to have made plasticity an idol, almost, and we've become like the thing we worship. Consider the constant pressure to reinvent oneself. I don't think that phrase would have been made any sense to anybody before the 1900s. The pressure to follow your bliss as opposed to follow your calling. The idea that the fully realized person is the one who breaks out of the mold. We can alter our bodies and even our external gender with plastic surgery. In all these instances, we see a type of personal individual truth that's the result of reasoning or our own understanding. In other words, the truth or goodness of something is discovered as the final phase instead of the beginning phase. For example, the modern world pretty much agrees that love is good. If we begin with that knowledge and work backwards, we might judge the goodness of God based on how God fits in our idea of love. So the Old Testament God, mean, angry, and judgy, and not really a good example of love. New Testament Jesus, meek and mild, and all about the kind of love we think of as good. 
But if we start from faith, we know that they're both the same God, and we know that God is good. So we must reconcile the two portraits to have real, actual knowledge of, about love. Pre-moderns thought differently about this, so St. Augustine wrote about 1,500 years ago that understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. That view of truth leading to knowledge was the mainstay of not just Judeo-Christian faith, but really every major thinker uh, in pre-modern world, including Plato, Aristotle, and all the Greeks. Today, it would probably get you kicked out of college. Type the phrase, belief leads to understanding, into Google, and one of the top hits is, a poor understanding of the physical world leads to religious belief. You'll also get a confusing array of articles addressing the incoherence of any belief, since the world is actually devoid of all meaning except that which we imagine on it. My point is to show that in the modern world, knowledge and belief have flipped. Uh, and we don't, it's really hard for us to see this since we live in the middle of it. Truth begins with us. In the modern view, if we have enough facts, the modern substitution for understanding, we will know what we should believe. So understanding leads to belief. It's the same with freedom. Modern man can only make a free choice if it is a choice from among anything that's possible. But that view, like knowledge leading to true belief, is exactly backwards from the way God reveals himself. In scripture, true freedom is the inability to choose corruption, which is why God is the most free being in existence. So what does this inversion of truth and knowledge have to do with my original point, um, the point from Damon's sermon about um, prayer and worship starting with God and ending with us, even though sometimes we think it starts with us and then God kind of sprinkles blessing on it. If God's the first cause of action for things like prayer and worship, then perhaps we're missing something if we don't, in all things, see God as the first cause for our knowledge of truth. I'd like to look at two scripture examples that illustrate that, one positive and one negative. Uh, so the first one is Abraham and Isaac in Genesis, and that's Genesis 22. Sometime later, <clears throat> God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, he took two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will all worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke, spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Uh, and as we know from that, that narrative, God did provide the lamb. It, said, it says right at the top of the passage that God tested Abraham. That makes sense, because viewed from the outside, that's exactly what it looks like. And there's a sort of a testing, but it's, there's something deeper going on there. So could God be testing Abraham in order to justify or make Abraham righteous once he passed the test? 
Not really, because 35 years earlier, God had already reckoned Abraham righteousness for his faith. In that earlier calling, we see the pattern of knowledge and wisdom being worked out. We see the order of, of knowledge and wisdom being worked out, faith leading to knowledge. God tells Abraham he will make him, through his offspring, into a great nation. But Abraham is around 100 or 75, and Abraham's and Sarah's maybe around 75 or 60. So that makes it seem impossible. If truth led to faith, then Abraham would still be Abram. But instead, he trusted God when he told him that he would make him into a great nation. So God calls, Abraham trusts, God acts with the birth of Isaac. Abraham has certain knowledge about the character of God. So we see God acts, we respond, God acts, we know. Faith leads to knowledge. 35 years after that act of trust, we come to what some view as the most controversial story of the Old Testament. God seemingly ordering the execution of the promised child. I can't imagine everything that was going through Abraham's mind, but we can see from the scripture that trust was pretty much foremost in his mind. We know because Abraham says as much when he's asked by Isaac about where they'll get the lamb for the sacrifice. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. This was not a, like a last-ditch hope, maybe, or a wild guess, or sort of a Hail Mary pass. I, I think the knowledge that came from God's gift of Isaac led to greater trust in God. And that wasn't a test in the way we think of it, but a way of God showing Abraham who God was and who Abraham was when he trusted God. And we see the same pattern in this later story uh, of the sacrifice of Isaac. God calls Abraham trusts because Abraham knows who God is. God acts again, and Abraham has even more certain knowledge about God and his character. As a counterexample, I'd like to take a look at uh, Judas. What does that pattern look like when it's reversed? This may be the other most extreme example of of, uh, the worst possible example of that. Um, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. By the way, I could have spoken about Pilate or even asked, what is truth? Which seems like a perfect link to this study, but it really lacks the power of Isaac uh, and Abraham or the Judas narrative since Pilate's statement was really more just like a rhetorical device saying, ah, what is truth? What do you know? It's really not a matter of whether he was trusting in God. I don't think uh, Pilate had any idea of, of what that would look like even. Back to Judas, he's not really mentioned that frequently in the early part of the Gospels. So if we take the the order of the calling of the apostles to relate to their dedication and trust in Jesus, we see Peter first and Judas last. Some think that he was drawn to be a, a follower or apostle because of greed or power. We aren't really totally certain. But one passage holds a particular interest for me. It's Mary and the perfume poured on, on Jesus' feet. The Gospel of John credits the indignant response of why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor to Judas and suggest it might have come from greed. The other Gospels, however, credit the grumbling to several of the disciples. And after this event, Judas alone decides to betray Jesus. It might have been for the money and, and greed, but there might have been other possibilities in addition to the greed. To justify the magnitude of the betrayal, Judas must have also had some positive reasons in his mind. Perhaps he really did think that he knew the best way to serve the poor. Or maybe he assumed that Jesus was now straying from his original mission. 
Either way, Judas knew the truth already about serving the poor. He didn't need to trust in God, that is Jesus, to reveal the truth. The difference between that view and Abraham's couldn't be more stark. Um, And when I say Judas knew the truth, I should put quotes around that. He thought he knew the truth, but instead of looking at the character of Jesus to find truth, he, he relied on his own reason of what serving the poor would look like. For Judas, knowledge led to belief, and Judas himself was the first cause and the judge of what should be right. If he knew that Jesus was going to ascend to power in the way Judas thought best, then Jesus could be trusted. But if he didn't know that Jesus was going to follow Judas' idea of what was the best way to go, then maybe he shouldn't be trusted. Maybe he needed to be corrected. Maybe he needed a little gentle reminder by the Pharisees, and Judas was ready to give that gentle reminder to Jesus through betraying him. It wasn't as though Judas didn't already have enough facts about Jesus. I mean, he saw Jesus heal the blind, raise the dead, cast out demons, multiply loaves and fishes. But when the order of trust is backwards, evidence can never be strong enough. Scripture is filled with examples of both the faithful and faithless, of trust in God, preceding knowledge, and knowledge as the measuring stick for the goodness of God. Both both are, are shown in Scripture all the time. The fall, the golden calf, the wandering in the desert, the Corinthians' view of freedom, the Pharisees' view of the Messiah are just a few examples of the failure to trust, despite overwhelming evidence. On the other side, Mary's trust in the Magnificat is probably the most beautiful uh, vision of what it means to trust God fully uh, that, I, that I know of. We also have Jesus' Jesus's faithfulness in his 40-day test, Joseph, Moses, David, sometimes, Daniel in lion's den, the woman who touched Jesus' cloak, the centurion, and the paralytic, among many others, as examples of people who trusted in who God said he claimed to be and through their trust had knowledge of what they should do. None of that is blind faith. In each example, God shows himself to be trustworthy. Judas was really without excuse, and in the end, he knew it. But since he had he was also without trust in the true nature and character of Jesus, his hopelessness led him to suicide instead of to repentance. For all of Peter's bad choices in the Passion Week, you know, drawing the sword, denying Jesus, his faith in the person of Jesus was strong, and God led him to repentance instead of to destruction. There are so many examples of this pattern, it almost begins to look so obvious that it doesn't even seem sermon-worthy. It's like saying, oh, water's wet. So let me finish by suggesting why this study was important to me and, and how, how sort of it came to be. As I mentioned before, the modern secular world claims that it only allows for the pattern of knowledge leading to truth. Even in pure science, this is a bad idea. And where it's been followed, it has always led to serious ethical breakdowns. Though in truth, it's rarely followed even in scientific research. Why? I want to pull the curtain back now and look at what's really going on behind the scenes with the modern secularist view. I'm going to get seemingly a flip my original premise that in the modern world, knowledge leads to faith. See, here's the deal. Nobody actually lives their lives following that order of knowledge leading to truth. They claim they do, but not even the ancients who stood against God, not every, everyday moderns, and not even scientists. It's always faith that is the base of all decisions. The question is faith in what? 
The reason that, that this is so hard to see is that secular faith is often disguised as knowledge in the modern world. There's a great myth that Christians face today when we engage in the public square. And that myth is that secular modernity provides a neutral starting ground. I could say, instead of myth, I could say it's the greatest lie, except I don't think most people think of it as a lie. I don't even think that moderns understand that it's not really a neutral position. It's not really a lie that's actively promoted. It's just sort of a starting point that's kind of accepted, and we just see it all around us, so it sort of becomes a way that that we're tempted to think ourselves. In the modern public square, liberalism is proposed as a value-free place of introspection. By liberalism, I mean modern democratic liberalism, uh, not any particular party. It's proposed as a value-free place of introspection where we can all meet and set aside nasty religious differences and just deal with things as they are, the real things. But that assumption starts with faith, a faith that God's place as the source of all things and his commandments are either optional, untrue, or a set of quaint old rules that are merely a source of comfort for the naively faithful. Either way, that's not really a very neutral starting point. Modern secularism is a faith that the physical world provides everything we need to know in order to live our lives and to flourish. But either God is the source or physical matter and chance are the source. Both cannot be true. And they can only sit side by side if we actively suppress our faith in the Lord's kingship of all things and in the truth that he is sovereign and that all truth and goodness comes from him. One thing that helps me navigate this confusion is to substitute the word trust for the word faith. Too often people think of leap of faith or your own personal faith when they hear that word. Unfortunately, faith has been marginalized in the modern world, but we all trust in something. Darwin, the scientific method, the basic goodness of man, pure reason, the environment, those are things you can trust in and and make as your basis for how you see the rest of the world or the goodness of, of God. Abraham trusted, had faith in God's goodness above all. From that, he knew how to proceed when he was called. Judas trusted, had faith, in his own wisdom about what was the ultimate good. He should actually have seen that his first calling was to trust Jesus. No matter what modern society would have us believe, we too are called to something very specific, just as Abraham was, just as Judas was, to trust in God and his word in the person of Jesus Christ. God has already acted through scripture, He's already acted through history and through his Holy Spirit, and he continues to act in every breath that we take. My response should be to trust his word with the knowledge that everything I do is a response to God's gracious actions. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can come together to worship you, to meet with friends and family in this place. Thank you that we have that freedom and that you are in control of all things. Pray that you would be with us, help us to see through what may not be accurate versions of truth, but to see you as the source of all truth and the beginning of all understanding. Please watch over us as we go out this week. Be with us, bless us, care for us, and watch over us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.